Let me open our time together tonight by uh, praying for us, and then we'll begin this last and final part of the series. So, the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this evening, and we thank you for the gifts of this day. We pray that you'd bless our time this evening. We thank you again, Lord, for our guests last week, and we pray again tonight your blessing upon them. Help us, Lord, as we are here to discuss and converse with one another and hear from you. So would you bless us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So um, just to give us a sense of where we've come, this was a four-part series. The very first part was just to introduce what this whole thing is all about. Why are we talking about refugees and not something else? The second part was really trying to get understanding, not just from a the, uh, what does the Bible have to say? But also, what, do, what does the actual resettlement process look like? Because it's really complicated, and very few people actually know what's involved. The th- we took two weeks off, and I encourage you to read some refugee stories and to watch the film The Good Lie, which I still highly recommend if you've not had a chance to watch that. Um, and as I said last week, what those things do is they, they personalize the story for you. And it's very, it's very difficult to, to judge and stereotype people who you've heard their stories and you've understand, understood that they're, they're complex beings and that they, they too have suffered. Um, and so I, I encourage you to do that if you haven't had a chance to, to watch the film. Last week, we were able to hear from Mary Keck. And Mary is a part of Christchurch Anglican in Central Phoenix. And I think she's 35. And she said last week that she's been involved with refugee ministry for more than 15 years. So that means that she was in college when she started. She's served in a variety of different ways. She's completed a master's degree related to this issue. She's worked with Mike before, and now she's at Abounding Service. Now she is currently directing Phoenix Refugee Connections, which is a a network of churches and organizations uh, wanting to resource um, churches and individuals and um, uh, integrate resources. So it's a good thing. I'll talk a little bit more about some of the handouts she left here because um, we went a little bit long last week and not everybody had a chance to, to get the things that Mary brought. But Mary also brought with her um, a Kurdish-Syrian uh, refugee couple. They left their kids because one of the kids was ill and they didn't want to bring that into our midst. They came and it was Ahmed and Ixil. I think that's right. And they brought with her uh, a woman named Roxanne who's from a Central Christian Church. And Roxanne, I think, as I understand it, has been leading their sponsor team. There's a sponsor team uh, at Central Christian, which has really sponsored this family. And so Ahmed and Iksil came and shared with us. And I wanted to just, uh, tonight what we're going to do is, is we're going to get practical. What now? And what practical opportunities are there for us um, in our, our own backyard? Um, but I want to open up just by, by um, asking this question about Iksil and Ahmed. Recap for me, if you can, the story of how they became refugees. How did that all happen, and how did they get here? Anybody remember? Well, yes, we were not here last <laughs> week, but and I've got I didn't get all the way through, so okay. I'm about halfway through yep. their discussion. But as I recall, uh, they went to Turkey. Yep. Okay, and Why? it sounds like they were actually rejected once. Yes. Yeah, they're they're northern Syrians, so they're yep. Kurds, but they're Muslims. Mm. Uh, yes. At, at, That's correct. So, and, um, and so one night they didn't make it. The next night they made it. Uh, it was difficult in, in Turkey because they're there kind of illegally. So there's very little for them to do right. and to try to provide for themselves. 
so that's a real difficulty. Can anybody pick up, uh, how do they get from Turkey here? Mike? And, and what John said is they, they made it to Turkey and they entered illegally, fleeing the violence in the Kurdish region of Syria, and they were there for three years. Just a couple of ad additions to that. Uh, he went there, I believe, for work yes. from, from, from the Kurdish part of... a job in the Kurdish region under, right. under siege. And he carried his son on his back, the one that uh, physical challenges the entire way. Um, and uh, they, if I remember correctly, um, he was working a lot of long hours and didn't see much of his family and ended up that they went to the United Nations and because their son was physically challenged and needed a wheelchair, they were put kind of in the front of the line, so to speak, to come to the United States as refugees. That's right. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what I understood. And I believe that process took more than two years. And that was actually expedited because of their son uh, who had need of a wheelchair and they couldn't get that in Turkey. So they, they said last week they, they pushed him around in a stroller that, that they found in Turkey, um, and it wasn't adequate. And they lived, their apartment was up multiple levels, so they had to carry him up um, every time. Um, so that was their story of, of how they ended up here. Uh, uh, they, they told us some really tragic things, some really amazing things that God did, and, and still we don't know the half of it. We don't know the half of what, what they endured. What were your reactions to their story? My heart was breaking for them. Mm -hmm. And if I were younger, I would have gone to Phoenix and worked with them. I think it's a wonderful ministry for those who are called to it. Anybody else have any, any reactions? David. I, too, listened to it. And for anyone who hasn't listened to it, listen to it. I'm sure it's not as powerful as having been here, but it's powerful. Um, one of my reactions was just being reminded they were overwhelmed by love. What we need to do is shower love, not theology, but love. Yeah, because what did that, what did the love produce? It, it produced a contact with Christ, tangibly, tangibly, and then in words. I guess I admire their courage and commitment to their family, immediate family, and the cost they even paid to leave their larger nuclear family behind, perhaps never to see them again. Uh, that's the costs are great. Their courage was great. It's, it's a grave decision they made. I was blessed to, to have them come, and I just, when I talked to Mary back in May, I said, would you come and share with us? She said, could I bring a refugee? And I said, please do. Yeah. And uh, I had no idea who she would bring. So um, I was so blessed by who she brought because what's going on in, in the Kurdish region of Syria is so on the forefront of the news right now. Um, really the, the clamp down, the, the dramatic decrease in refugees allowed into this country, it really began with what's happening in Syria. They were one of the very last families to be allowed into this country, and they came to Christ. They came to Christ. So in many ways, their own story, it kind of, it kind of was enough, you know, just to hear their story. You didn't probably have to do four sessions. Um, <laughs> They kind of made the point. Well, thank you guys. Thank you for those who were here last week because I, I think they were encouraged 
and we had an opportunity to pray for them, um, which Roxanne wrote me an email and just said they were so blessed by that, um, which uh, it was a blessing just to be able to do that with them, and for those of you who listened. And I encourage you just, you know, as, as you're um, hearing what we're talking about and you're, you're finding yourself interested and touched, encourage people in the congregation and, and people that you talk to to listen. Just encourage them to listen. Tonight, what we're going to do is, is, is to get practical, and I'm going to back up. And I want to just, again, reiterate what a refugee is. A refugee is somebody who's displaced, cannot return home because they're afraid to do so due to war, famine, violence, based upon race, religion, nationality, political opinion, belonging to a social group, uh, and so on and so forth. They apply for legal refugee status, so they're only designated a refugee if they've been given that legal status um, by the United Nations Refugee Agency or a, another foreign government such as the United States. While they're displaced in some other country, for example, with uh, Ahmed and Iksil, they were displaced in Turkey. And there, in that country, not, not a Western country, they lived and applied for refugee status, were granted it, and it took two years for them to actually get the phone call that they could come to the United States, and that was because of their son who was uh, handicapped, who is handicapped. And then finally, refugees do not enter the destination country, in this case the United States, until they have the legal permission to do so. So that was their, their story. They got a call and really, relatively quickly, jumped on a plane. It's just a, it's a remarkable thing that refugees go through, even just to have the blessing of being relocated to a country like this. I want to talk to you and just kind of set the stage for tonight's discussion by talking to you about the global team here at Living Faith. Back in the epiphany of 2018, I preached a series on Jonah, and I used that book to, to talk about uh, Jonah as a really a missionary figure. And um, from that discussion, and we talked in that series a lot about the unreached people groups of the world and how little emphasis and actual boots on the ground is, is happening in terms of gospel witness in those regions. And um, out of that, I, I just started kind of praying and asking the Lord, is this something that living faith can begin to, to, to cultivate an awareness of, and, and are there ways for us to get involved? And what I realized was we have people in this church who are actually already involved in the work of global mission. They just happen to be stateside, uh, people who work for Frontiers, for example. Um, I reached out to Sonia and um, asked her if she would be willing to, to pray and discern with me about starting up a global team. To, to focus and begin to just kind of generate some awareness about these things. And uh, over the course of, um, it's been close to two years now, we really believe pretty strongly that the place to begin um, is with cultivating an awareness of the needs of refugees and beginning to care for them. And um, that's what we've been doing. You might, have, you might have seen increased emphasis on uh, ministry to refugees. We talked about that during Pentecost. Um, and now we've got this, this series happening, and, and more and more is going to be, to be happening. What I want to ask, though, is how does caring for our refugee neighbors actually impact the scene of global missions? Why, why is the global team doing refugee ministry here in Tempe? Because that sounds more like outreach instead of global mission. It's kind of like what goes on at ASU. We just talk about it at ASU that um, the world has come to us. So these students will be, you know, if they become believers, will eventually go back to their own countries or else they have some influence here in their own countries 
for Christ. And refugees could become Christians and could become missionaries back to their own places. Any other reasons why there's a connection between the global team and the purpose of that and the needs of refugees in our own city? Sonia. What happens here, like what happens in their lives, also affects their extended family because um, they're in contact with them, so wherever they are. Good. Good. That's, thank you guys for sharing that. You, you, you've covered it up almost all of what I, what I wanted to say here. This is good. The first thing I wanted to say is these are, these are people from the global community right here, right? So, and this is, this is what's said is, is people from the nations are coming here, and, and we shouldn't, it's not that we shouldn't go to the nations, just that we, we shouldn't talk about going to the nations unless we're also going across the street to the nations. We, sh we should do both. Um, secondly, by caring for refugees here, we support the struggling nations which are bearing 99% of the world's refugees. Remember, only 1% of the world's refugees, 26 million, get a chance to be resettled in a Western country. So that means that the third world nations surrounding these war-torn and you know, areas of famine, they're the ones bearing the burden. Um, so what we do by caring for refugees in this country is actually helping the global community. Thirdly, this is what Sonia's getting at, how, how we respond here to refugees here, it, it directly impacts the communities which these people come from, whether it's because of their families or for other reasons. What we do here actually has a, an impact on the global community. Uh, fourthly, we, we emulate compassion and care for the rest of the world. Not just, not just, you know, the church, not just the church, we do have a witness for the world, but also our, our country. Um, the, the refugee program that has been um, overseen, really without controversy by the U U.S. government for decades, has been a witness to the world for human dignity and compassion and justice. And it's only recently become politically contentious. And that number has dropped off the face of the earth, so to speak. Uh, fifthly, immigrants and refugees, and this is said, are not just objects of mission that we go to them, but they also become agents of mission. So not all refugees will have a chance to go back to their home country. Their country may never become a safe place to go back to. Or they may become citizens here and not wish to go back. But some may. Some may. And if they're compelled by Christ to do that, wow. We, we've not only, not only has someone been, been won to the kingdom, they've also been won by the mission of God, and they want to win their people. Yeah. So what, what Sonia and I have been discussing, and I'll say this, Sonia is, is going to be stepping down from that role as on the global team not just because she was elected to vestry last January, but also because she has an upcoming four-month sabbatical, thanks be to God. Um, so we are, we are working on recruiting somebody else to take over that role for her, um, so the work will continue. Um, but this has been uh, the, the place where we wanted to begin as, as a global team, is to identify or to cultivate an awareness of what's happening in our own backyard in terms of refugees, and then to begin to practically care for them. We're going to move into a time of what are the practical opportunities that we have for reaching refugees in our own city? But before I do that, I want to talk about two, uh, two themes. The first is biblical hospitality. In the minds of most Americans, what is hospitality? How would they define hospitality? 
Dennis, inviting people for dinner. Okay. I think it's interesting we have this term in the U.S., hospitality industry. What is the hospitality industry? Well, it's where people are paid okay. to care for you. Okay, like, like what? Uh, hotels, hotels and resorts and, resorts? yeah, even restaurants. Even restaurants. Yeah. Versus hospitality, I think, in the Christian sense, is just giving of oneself without anything expected in return. So I, I think that when we talk about this word hospitality, it's, it's again, it's one of those instances where we have to define our term. What are we talking about? It's not that entertaining people in your home is a bad thing. It's just that's not the same as hospitality. Uh, oftentimes when we, when we entertain, I don't know about you, but when I, when I am in the entertaining mode and I feel like I'm entertaining, it's stressful. Everything's got to be clean. Everything's got to be right because it's, it's, on some level, it's a performance. Hospitality is not that way. Hospitality is really about inviting someone into your life as it is and giving them what you have. That, it's really that simple. And I think for some of us, that just doesn't feel like enough. Really? I mean, that's it? If we just invite people into the mess? But I think that's really what biblical hospitality is about. And let me, let me just talk about that a bit further. Um, hospitality... In the, New, in the New Testament, in at least this one example, it comes from this Greek word, philoxenia, which means practice loving strangers. Practice loving strangers. Paul says in, in Romans 12, 13, practice hospitality, which means practice loving strangers. What, is that, what does that mean? It, it really, it means, it means inviting them into your life and caring for them wherever they have needs. Tim Keller says in his book, Generous Justice, he says the strangers whom Jesus talked about were immigrants and refugees. They were to be invited in. They were not merely to be sent to a shelter, but were to be welcomed into the disciples' homes and lives. And it is implied, given the advocacy, friendship, and basics for pursuing a new life in society. That feels like, I don't know about you, but that feels like a really, if I were looking at that as, somebody who's non-Christian and was thinking politically, I'd say, man, this guy's a, a liberal progressive. And if you know Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, he is not a progressive liberal. He's a gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, wonderful pastor. And he says, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches hospitality. And, and what's interesting is that hospitality for Christians, it was kind of the beginning. It wasn't the end point. It was, it, was the, it was the starting point. And that's where I'm going now is hospitality really isn't even the end goal. Theologian Sun Chang Ra says we need to move from hostility, so hostility with our immigrants and refugees and strangers, to hospitality. So we make that jump. And then we move from hospitality to household. What he's saying is, uh, what we really hope and, and our real goal is that our enemies come into our lives and then become our family. Our family how? We, we hope that they'll become our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's the biblical move. It's Christ has broken down the, the dividing wall of hostility. And instead of hostility, we practice hospitality in order that we might be the household of God. That's, that's the end goal. And that's really what, what Tim Keller is getting at and says that Jesus really cares about. 
So it's really important, I think, that we have a biblical understanding of hospitality. The second thing I want to talk about, the second theme, is the difference between evangelism and proselytism. What, what, what is the difference? Is anybody able to, to articulate that? I'll, I'll take one brave soul. I think evangelism is just sharing God in your own life and sharing the gospel with people. But if you're going to try and proselyte, that's the end goal, is like they need to be converted. You don't really care about them after the process is over. You're, you know, that's, that's the end goal. And evangelism is, like you said, welcoming people into the household of God. I like it. Here, here's how I've, I've defined the difference here. Evangelism is this. It is a persuasive appeal and an open invitation to a personal relationship with Jesus. It's more than just an invitation. It's more than we just say, hey, this, this, is, this is here for you. We also want to be persuasive because Christ is compelling. The gospel is compelling because it's true. But what evangelism is not is proselytism. Proselytism is a coercive effort to convert someone, whether by threat or by deceit, or by incentives, or by pressure. This has happened throughout history, even in the church. You might have heard of rice Christians in China. They were starving people given rice if they became Christians. That's not evangelism. That's proselytism. And they're not the same, and proselytism is not valuable, and we're going to talk about why. But why does this distinction matter? Why, why should we be thinking about uh, the distinction between these two things? Why is that important? The condition of the heart. Yeah, one addresses the condition of the heart, the other really doesn't. They tell you different things about God, right? Keep going. What does evangelism tell, tell about God that's different than proselytism? I think evangelism tells you there's a, there's a God of hospitality. I think Brother Decker is convinced. And, and proselytism is not that how? It's not loving. Okay, it's not loving? It's, a, it's really about applying force. It, it could be, right. That's not how God reaches us, right? Certainly God could force us into his kingdom. That's not what he does. So, so how can we abandon God's method when we think about preaching the gospel? Now here's another reason I think this distinction is important for us as Christians who are gospel-centered and Bible-focused. And that is because our culture is going to want to blur the line between these two things. And they're going to want to say that any evangelism you do is proselytism. And part of that is is the church's fault. Because we've been too guilty of this kind of garbage. And the world is sick of it. And I don't blame them. But what we can't be pushed into is this, this, oh no, we were so bad and now we won't we won't open our mouths because we don't want to be called proselytizers. No, we are called to evangelism. We're called to be evangelistic, but to reject proselytism. The Lausanne movement, which um, really dates to 1974. Billy Graham was a big player here. It comes from the Council of, for World Evangelization. This is what they say. They say, while the nature of our faith, Christianity, requires us to share the gospel with others, 
Our practice is to make an open and honest statement of it, which leaves the hearers entirely free to make up their own minds about it. We wish to be sensitive to those of other faiths, and we reject any approach that seeks to force conversion on them. Now, this statement, it is not relativistic. It is not saying that every faith is equally legitimate. It's simply saying that if someone is going to accept Christ, it must be because Christ has drawn them and they have said yes to Christ, not because we have forced them into it. Um, Proselytism, it actually corrupts evangelism. It actually sows bad seed instead of good seed. And uh, this is what Anglican theologian and pastor John Stott says about proselytism. He calls it unworthy witness. He says it's uh, whenever unworthy witness occurs when our motives and our methods or our message are unworthy of the God whom we witness about. And this is getting back to what Father Carl was saying, that, that evangelism says something about who God is and what God has done, and proselytism says something else, and the message from proselytism is not the gospel. Yeah. It does damage, it does damage to God and it does damage to the true gospel. So it's very important that we make this distinction and that as we begin to talk about practical opportunities to serve refugees in our own community, that we ourselves are cognizant of that and that we don't get, we don't get fearful of people who point the finger and say, what you're doing is wrong. Don't you understand that these people came from a, a culture with a religion and, and they don't need you to talk to them about Jesus? Leave them alone. They just need you to take care of them. That's not true. But... We also need to make sure that we are not being coercive and deceitful or manipulative or pressuring because that is counter to the gospel. Our, our method must match our message and our motives, and that's what Stott is really saying here. How do we then share Christ with refugees? Because if we're, we're called to be evangelistic, but we're called to reject proselytism, so how do we do that? How do we preach Christ without proselytizing? By our actions. By, by what we do, and then um, backing it up maybe with scripture, but, but mostly by, by showing okay. and by doing. Okay. Give it just a second. I just think about the passage of Peter where it says, be ready, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. And that's, that question is asked once you have done actions that prompt the question, right? Okay. So I, I think that doing is, is really paramount to opening up someone's heart to hear what you might want to share about the Lord. But also, um, I think it's good for us not to shy away from discussion. So I have a friend who's from Libya, and when we get together, we always talk politics. And um, so he has the same longing that we have. We have a longing for a government that reflects the gospel and that, you know, is just and right and good, and, you know, he has that same longing. And, and I uh, often say, what you're longing for and I'm longing for is really the kingdom of God. This is God's kingdom, and we don't see it in practice right now today, but someday God will reign and all these things will be put to right. So that's just like, it's, it's just always good to draw the conversation back to, to the Lord. Once again, I think we can look to God. How did God bring his message to us? He met us where we're at in our sin, in this filthy world we live in, and then he died on the cross for us. 
his actions were what were compelling. Here, here's uh, what, I, what I have for us. We need to first be careful to not give our love simply because someone is a Christian or not, right? We talked about the fact that the majority of refugees to this country are Christian, um, but a lot of them aren't. And so when we're confronted with one or the other, while we do have a unique obligation to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't have the option of not loving the non-Christian, right? Um, serve them as if you were serving Christ, Think that's biblical? Invite them into your life and into your home. That is a witness. But here's the thing that I, that I think is also really important, and this I think is what Sarah's getting to, is talk about Jesus whenever you have the chance to. This quote, I'm not sure if it's actually, you know, historically accurate or not, but the quote is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, uh, preach the gospel, and if, yes, if necessary, use words. And... While I think there's some truth to that, it's, I think in many ways it's just a cop-out. It's like, well, I don't, it's really like I'm afraid to talk about Jesus, so I'll just do nice things. I don't think it's always that, but that's, I think, what it can produce in people. But the, the distinction is that Jesus does call us to use words, but perhaps maybe we're too quick with our words, and we don't first build a relationship of trust and give ourselves credibility. We don't, we don't express that what comes out of our mouth is true by nature of what we do, and we don't express that what comes out of our mouth is actually loving by nature of the fact that we act loving. And I think that's what Father Call is getting at. Um, your, your actions produce the opportunities for you to use words. And how did you become a Christian? Was it just because someone loved you, or did someone actually use words to talk about the gospel with you? Somebody used words eventually, right? So if we have the opportunity to use our words, we must not miss the opportunity to use our words and simply talk about Jesus. There's power in his name. Don't be afraid to use his name. Never pressure them, though, to accept Christ. There's a difference between pressuring and persuading. Paul says persuade. Persuade. Jesus is persuasive. There's not a whole lot that we need to do except to speak about Jesus to be persuasive. Jesus is the most persuasive thing about Christianity. And sometimes people want to throw out Christianity and just keep the Christ, but we know we can't do that. But Jesus is persuasive. There's no one in history like Jesus. So persuade, but don't pressure. Don't pressure. And then finally, never qualify your service to them or your acceptance of them or your compassion towards them based upon their response or non-response of faith in Christ, okay? So keep this in your minds as you're hearing people perhaps criticize the church for proselytism, and you ask the question, well, is it, is it proselytism or is it, is it evangelism? And make sure as we're thinking about how to minister to refugees that you are evangelizing and not sowing bad seeds of, of proselytism, which actually counter our witness. So uh, without further ado, I want to just talk about some practical opportunities we have right here in the city. Um, Mary got to some of these last week, and I want to just encourage you as you leave tonight, if you didn't get a chance to pick up these handouts, please grab them on your way out. I think you'll find them helpful. So what I want to do tonight is um, first just see this, this graphic again. Refugees are in this category here, but they're within this larger uh, category of displaced people. In part one, we talked about in our defining terms, what are displaced people, and that's really the large umbrella 
And within that uh, large umbrella of forcibly displaced people, you have people who are internally displaced. For, for instance, people in Syria who have had to flee their cities and go to other cities within Syria to find refuge. Then you have um, people who are seeking asylum, like many folks at our southern border. And then you have this category of refugees, which is what this series has been specifically about. But that's 26 million. 26 million refugees. Yes. So much, much higher in terms of displaced people, but 26 million refugees uh, uh, worldwide. Does anybody remember what the, um, the new cap for the fiscal year 2020 is, Mike? 18,000. 18, That's lower than it's ever been in the history of the United States by a lot. 18,000 compared to 26 million. That's not really a dent, right? So let's think about this. 1% of all refugees, 26 million, get a chance to be resettled in a Western nation, which means that 99% are settled in either refugee camps or urban environments where they have no rights and no jobs and no sustenance in countries that are neighboring to their own, okay? And they are in the process of applying for refugee status and trying to get placed in a country which can take them in which they have a future. Which means that when refugees are ultimately resettled in a place like ours, when they're of the 1%, we have this really critical opportunity for the gospel. One that I, I, I want us not to miss. I, don't, I want the American church not to miss. Uh, this is what the, the, the author said, and I referenced it back in part two. They say this. We should not presume that once a non-Christian refugee has been resettled to a majority Christian country, that they will automatically encounter the gospel. At present, fully 60% of people of non-Christian religious traditions residing in North America, most of them who are foreign-born, they say that they do not personally know a Christian. Not that they've never read the Bible or never been to church, but that they don't even know a Christian. I think that has to change. And if it, if it needs to change, it needs to change with us. We need to be the ones to start introducing ourselves to these, these people who do not know a Christian. So that's what we're talking about here, here again. Um, what practical opportunities are there for us to respond, not just as individuals, but I'm, you know, I'm concerned as, as pastor of this church with how can we as a congregation join together and serve refugees? And that's really been the thrust of uh, the global team. Now, in, on Mary's handout, if you got that, you, you might have seen this. This was, a, I think, a really helpful graphic. Uh, Mary said that in, in getting involved in refugee ministry, and really, I mean, some level, any ministry, there's a spectrum of commitment. And uh, sometimes we can, we can say, oh, I don't think I'm ready for that because it feels like a bigger commitment than it is. And certainly, if we're talking about the deep end, over here it is a very big commitment. Um, but over here on the shallow end, not as much commitment. And all of us are going to find perhaps different levels of interest and different levels of time uh, when it comes to serving refugees, and therefore, there are different levels of commitment. So what we're going to talk about tonight will be um, moving from the shallow end uh, to the deep end, um, and we're just going to kind of give that spectrum of places where there uh, are opportunities to serve. The very first place that, and these are all opportunities right now in Phoenix, although I, here's, here's a caveat. Before, uh, before 2016, with the presidential election, World Relief, which um, is the largest evangelical Christian refugee ministry in the country, 
They were planning to open an office in the East Valley. And when um, President Trump clamped down on, on refugees, they didn't have the opportunity to open that office because Phoenix was not going to be receiving nearly as many refugees. That is continuing, and as, as President Trump brings the cap down, that will continue to be the case. Most refugees in our city are settled in Glendale and Central Phoenix, and largely that's because it's, it's more affordable cost of living. So the opportunities for serving refugees is actually diminishing, not because the needs of refugees are diminishing, because that's going through the roof, but simply because the government is not allowing as many, as many in. So um, everything I'm about to say is a real um, need now, um, but the opportunities are, are shrinking, which would normally we would say, wonderful. The needs are shrinking. The needs aren't shrinking. Um, the, the, the opportunities for caring for those needs are actually be taken, being taken away. So the first thing, and, and I'm going to just kind of from one water droplet to four water droplets, that was Mary's way of showing you what's the shallow end to what's the deep end, okay? So um, shallow end, these are typically things that can be done as a one-off. They don't require an ongoing relationship. They don't require a large amount of time. Welcoming newly settled refugees. If you watch the movie The Good, the Good Lie, I mean, there was a moment when that refugee, uh, those boys got off the plane, right? Um, there were people there. There were Americans there, not from the government, but from... Uh, relief organizations, the Catholic Charities or Lutheran Social Services or World Relief or something like that, there to welcome and to bring them and to usher them uh, to their new home and to get them situated. That's not to say the government isn't involved. It is, but that's really where the government's job tends to end and the relief organizations tend to take over. Um, so we can work like with local agencies like Catholic Charities, like Lutheran Social Services. We could greet new refugees at the, at the airport so long as there are refugees actually coming through the airport. Um, each of the ministries that I'm going to mention tonight, uh, Mary has given some explanation in that handout, so I'm not going to replicate it here. Uh, there's also just donating household items and resources. Mary said last week that a lot of times the bare essentials, you know, a mattress, um, a, a table, and a chair, maybe a couch, uh, are provided for refugees when they arrive, but nothing else. It's very spartan and sparse. And um, there is so much need for even just, you know, things that are aesthetically pleasing, whether it's a, an old painting that you don't want at your house or something, you know, whether it's a coffee table or an antenna, you know, needs for furniture, household items, cleaning supplies, dishes, all these things that could be donated. Um, Catholic Charities handles some of those donations, as does this last thing, the Welcome to America Project which is one thing that I think we have a lot of potential for getting involved with as a parish, and I'm thinking a lot about um, this with the youth, the youth group as well. The Welcome to America Project is a warehouse here in Tempe, and they collect these goods, and every Saturday uh, with newly uh, arriving refugee families, they take volunteers like us and send them out to bring these new belongings to new refu refugee homes, and then uh, to unload, and then to have a meal uh, with those refugee uh, families. That is, it's a pretty small time commitment, two to three hours on a Saturday morning, and just a little bit of driving, depending on where the families are located. So this is, this is just kind of welcoming refugees who are just arriving, all right? And they're, you know, fresh off the boat, as it were, okay? Shell-shocked, probably. Um, another pretty low-level commitment is just simply inviting refugees into, their, into your home. Now, obviously, you have to have some sort of relationship and be able to meet a refugee before that happens, but once that's established, there's nothing uh, saying that you can't say, come over. We'd love to have you over for a meal. 
What, what happens when someone comes into your home for a meal? How, do, how does the relationship change? It gets closer. It gets closer, okay. How, how so? You're spending time with them. Okay. You're spending time with them? You're sharing the meal. Okay. Good, I agree with you. Yeah. It's a much deeper knowledge of someone. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. It feels less transactional, more personal. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the, the Welcome to America project is really good, but it's you entering their life. This is them calling them into your life. That's right. Come on more. Just real quick. Um, I was just going to share with everybody that when we talk to the refugees, the number one thing that they tell us they want is to go into American homes. Almost none of them have ever been in American homes. Yes. Yep. So Mike, Mike read my notes. <laughs> Majority of immigrants and refugees will never enter an American's home, an American's home, right. let alone an American Christian's home. It's a really compelling opportunity that we have. Second, uh, second, third way, sorry, third place uh, to get involved, and this is just a little bit deeper of a commitment, and that is English language tutoring. Most refugees, when they're resettled here, do not speak English. Only 7% of them have any sort of fluency in the language. Um, and as Mary said last week, one of the single greatest markers of whether or not a refugee will make it in this country is whether or not they'll be able to get adequate or find mastery over the language. The organization that Mike uh, is a part of and leads, Abounding Service, uh, along with the other organization that he mentioned, Go10, which uh, stands for Go to Every Nation, they each have tutoring centers for, well, I know uh, Abounding Service is, is in between places, but uh, God will provide. Yes, God will provide. Um, and that's a big part of their ministry, is helping to equip people with the language that they're going to so desperately need um, to make it here. So this is, this is really, really practical, tangible stuff. Anybody know, here, know English here? <laughs> you, you can transfer your knowledge of English to somebody else uh, without exception. You can do that. Anybody could do that. Uh, the fourth way, and this is a, a little bit deeper, um, but it may not be as deep as you think. Uh, this is really has to do with assisting refugees as, as they go through the legal system. You think about how challenging it is for us to do taxes or to do things that relate to uh, the legal system or even just the government processes. How difficult is it for us as English-speaking Americans? Multiply that by 10, by 20 for somebody who's a non-English-speaking refugee. Now, what I'm not suggesting, and certainly Seeking Refuge does not suggest this either, is that if you're, if you're incompetent, in, in uh, you know, those documents and stuff that, that you give advice to refugees. Um, what, they really, what they really advocate, <laughs> what, they, what they really advocate is that local churches um, consider seeking um, authorization as legal counsel. And they can do that through uh, the Federal Board of Immigration Appeals. A local church can become certified to help refugees walk through the legal, immigration, whatever, tax uh, documents that they, that they are just trying to fill out and make happen for their lives to, 
happen. Um, think about what legal fees typically cost from attorneys. I couldn't afford legal fees in preparation for taxes or you know, some other peripheral item. So how much harder would it be for them to afford it? So a lot of this has to do with affordability, making legal assistance affordable so that they have a chance for success. Now, lawyers in a church are a bonus, but it's not a necessity. And so that's why I don't want us to feel like, oh, this is, this is something that we couldn't ever consider. Um, that being said, there are many uh, relief organizations that whenever they set up an office, they're granted this uh, certification. And that's a big role uh, that they play in serving refugees, is helping them affordably just navigate the system that they have to navigate by nature of being a refugee here in this country. They don't have a choice. Um, A fifth way of of getting involved, and this is a little bit more out there, maybe a little bit, um, I don't know, this is a little bit more dicey. And uh, the commitment is is quite a spectrum, but that is confronting unjust policies. I mean, speaking up about injustice in government structures and policies, and I I believe that that's actually a necessary part of loving our neighbors. I want to share with you a quote from from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and I'm going to read that here. I don't have it up there because it was a little bit long. So this is what what he says about the parable of uh, the Good Samaritan. On the one hand, we're called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside. But that will only be the initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. See the difference? It's a movement from individual injustice to systemic and institutional injustice. And I'm afraid that that's not something that, that Americans <laughs> um, tend to understand unless we're the victims of institutional and systemic injustice. And then we see it. So um, we're called as Christians to, to not just pursue compassion for individuals and who are facing the symptoms of unjust symptom, uh, systems in the world, but also to take a look at those um, unjust systems and say, that is, not, that is not of God. Now, they make very clear that the, the way in which we do that, in fact, this is, this is what I'm about to say, um, the way in which we do that has to be civil and godly. And, uh, and this is where we get back to, you know, uh, the, the end does not justify the means. Our, our method must match our message. So um, pointing fingers with hate and with anger and with outrage You're not winning people to Christ. You might be winning them to some uh, folk Christian religious uh, argument, but it's not Christianity because the method doesn't match the gospel. So we've got to be careful how we do this. We also need to be wary of political parties looking to further their agendas through the church because we don't don't serve political parties. We serve Christ. And um, sometimes we can be a vessel for worldly powers just because they, they might agree with us on one thing and we let them use us and we bind ourselves to them. We shouldn't do that. We don't serve them. We serve Christ. We're citizens of his kingdom first and secondly of this country. The authors say this. They say, uh, while it is a mistake for the church 
to undermine its mission by coming, becoming too closely identified with any political party, we also believe God calls us to speak clearly about biblical principles that can form the basis of fair and effective government policy. We should do so always with civility and grace for those both within and outside the church who may disagree with us. We must consistently allow scripture to guide us, not only in the policies ends that we pursue, but also in the political means by which we pursue them. One, just to give you an idea of, of what this means, what does it mean to confront unjust policies? One really, really practical example, and, and this may not even be that meaningful, but it is a practical example of this confronting unjust systems. Um, Mary, you might have seen if you got on Mary's, Mary Keck's email list, she sent out an email yesterday um, with a, a form calling evangelical Christians in Arizona to speak up to Governor Ducey about um, the fact that under Trump's new regulations, um, states will have to say that they are okay with refugee resettlement in order for refugees to be resettled here. Remember, it was a way of skirting around it and making it so that refugees wouldn't be settled here unless the governor actually said, yes, they can be resettled here. So this is a, it's a petition to Governor Ducey. We as evangelical Christians, we care about this and we love these people, and so should you. That's, that's a really simple witness. It may not have an effect, but it's still a witness. We preach the gospel even if somebody's not converted because we preach the gospel. So we still witness even if there's no effect, but we pray that there will be an effect. So confronting unjust policies. Two more things, and we're going to close it up, but I do want to show you this. This, this is a, a stat from 2015, um, but it shows you... Uh, where we were politically, although, and I think it's probably gotten a little bit worse since 2015, in terms of governors in, in our nation who uh, are, are unwilling to welcome refugees into the state. So red are all those governors not wanting to, to have refugees in the country. The gray, the dark gray is welcome refugees like, you know, Washington, and then not committing one way or the other are all these little kind of light gray oh, states. That's right. That's Syrian refugees. Sorry, yes. Thank you. Thank you. This is Syrian refugees happening about the time of 2015, when this was really breaking wide open. Um, what's alarming to me, and, and I've, I think I've shared this before, is <clears throat> we were in Birmingham, Alabama for eight years, and Birmingham, Alabama has earned uh, the title, the largest uh, United States city to not resettle refugees. Um, another title that, that Birmingham has is the most churched city in the whole country. <laughs> And, and I was scratching my head saying, how can this be? And if you, where's the Bible Belt? Tell me where the Bible Belt is. Tell me where the liberal states are. And I just say, brothers and sisters, it, it can't be this way. We can't be outdone by people who don't even know Jesus. It, it can't happen. Two more ways to, to serve refugees in our community. Um, refugee adoption, and this is the deep end, okay? But this is what Roxanne was representing. And it was the refugee adoption or sponsoring that produced this loving care for Ahmed and Ixil, which was a part of their conversion. Uh, refugee adoption is when, when a church, specifically, typically it's eight to 12 people who, who, who form some sort of sponsor or adoption team. They sponsor a newly arrived refugee family in order to help them integrate. And uh, there is a, a defined time for that sponsorship. 
It's not an ongoing indefinite thing. That's not to say it can't continue if the sponsoring team wants it to continue. But there is an end result, so there is an end to the commitment. But it is, it's a commitment. It's, it's answering their questions. It's serving as a cultural liaison. It's assisting with transportation and going to the grocery store, practicing English. All these different skills and things they're going to need just to function as people in our society. And um, Lutheran Social Services in Tempe, they, they've reached out to us and, and to Sonia, and I think we, Mike has talked to them as well about the possibility of living faith doing this in the future. And I said, man, this is what I hope we'll, we'll be able to do one day. But we're going to get in the pool at the, at the shallow end, and I hope we can swim to the deep end. Um, another, uh, another deep end opportunity, and this is it's really for, for you as individuals, and this is what Mary was talking about. Mary and her husband, um, they fostered an unaccompanied minor from, from Congo. And this woman, I believe, was 16 when she came, and she stayed in their home until she was 18. And uh, at that time, she was required to leave their home to become independent. Uh, they weren't allowed to continue to house her there. But she moved down the street, and they're still her foster parents. Um, so it's, it's becoming licensed to foster an, an orphaned refugee child. And it's not just an orphan, like, you know, in some ref, uh, or in some orphanage in another country. It's, it's an unaccompanied minor here right now that has no care. Organizations like Catholic Charity, they help in this area. So these are, this is shallow end to deep end, and the question is really, what now? And I, I want to just leave us with three questions. I know I've gone over this evening. I, I, what I didn't get to tonight, and I knew I wouldn't, but I would like you know, to, I may send you a, a blurb by email, is when we think about helping, um, kind of going along with the not proselytizing thing, we need to make sure that the ways that we're helping is actually helping and not, not hurting. If we're going to go through the effort of helping, how can we ensure that the help is actually help and isn't actually hurting in the process? Um, I, I may send you that, that email, but the three questions I want to leave you are, which of these things are you well suited for? Your time, your talents, and the things that you're interested in. Is God calling you as an individual to step in and just poke your foot in the water? Maybe you just want to dive right in, the deep end. I don't know. Um, but also, which of these things is our church well suited to address? This is, I mean, churches have personalities. Churches have demographics. Churches have different levels and different kinds of resources. So what as a church are we well suited for in terms of engaging our refugee brother or neighbors? And then the last thing I want you to consider, and I'm not going to request any answers from you this evening, but I would love to hear from you by email if you have thoughts. Um, the last question is this. What are two or three things you learned in the course of this series or in reading the book Seeking Refuge that you could share with others even Christians, to encourage a more biblical, fact-based response to the refugee crisis? Two or three things. Perhaps it's, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that the Bible had so much to say. Or, or perhaps it's, um, there are legitimate fears about the refugee community, but most of them, there's not a lot of substance to them. Or maybe it's, uh, I didn't realize that um, refugees were so... Um, deeply vetted before they arrive, more than any other foreigners to our soil. Uh, or maybe it's, 
uh, I didn't realize how many things that could actually be done right now. I, I didn't know these people were here. What are two or three things that you could talk with one another about? Whether it's people in our community, people at your work, people at a different Bible study you go to. We, we, are, um, we are the best marketing for care for refugees. We do have a witness to carry. And it may be, it, our, our witness and our care for refugees may be in just raising this issue with Christians who may not agree with us on this or people in the world who may not understand why this matters. We can talk about it with grace and with love and with the gospel. I want to thank you guys for participating in the series. I hope that, um, I hope that you've learned something along the way. And if you haven't learned anything, I hope that um, particularly our, our guest speakers last week were a blessing to you and show you in embodied form not just the tragedy of the refugee crisis, but the opportunity. Amen? Let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that you're a God who came to us in order to provide us refuge from sin and from death. We thank you for the home that you are preparing for us. And Lord, in many ways, we are still refugees wandering this earth, a place that does not belong to us. You're preparing a new heavens and a new earth for us where all will be right. In the meantime, Father, we pray that with the compassion and the hospitality you've given us that we would learn, that we would grow in our hospitality and our compassion for others. Help us to take the first step to meet them, to speak with them, to hear their stories, to love them, to love their children, to invite them in, to see them as people, to be blessed by them, and Lord, to pray that they come to know you and enter the household of God. Help us, we pray, to move from hostility to hospitality to household. May it be so, and may you begin with us, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.